Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. My full name is Jason Kili'i Nahukula Lindo. I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. I come from a mixed race family. And like everybody at Hawaii, we're all mixed race. And we all have some dealings with the supernatural. It is so much a part of life back home that we don't even think about it as being unusual. You might remember Jason from the previous episode where he shared a story of his great-grandmother casting a hex on her abusive son-in-law. I was introduced to Jason through my friend Sarah Lemos-Auni from the Ghost Town Terror. Jason has an incredibly rich family history and inspirational journey towards becoming a curandero. His multicultural upbringing also provides a unique perspective on the spirit world. In today's episode, he'll share stories about his imaginary childhood friends that would tell him the future, seeing his dead grandmother he'd never met, his and his auntie's encounters with Tutupele, and the most terrifying thing he's witnessed on a paranormal investigation. And now, here's Jason. So on my mom's side, my maternal grandmother was Portuguese, and she was what's called a benzadeira in our language, a healer that healed um, by praying to the saints. My maternal grandfather was Native Hawaiian and Chinese and English, really steeped in his culture. His mother was um, a lady in waiting to the last queen, to Lilio Kumagi. Um, so my Family on the Hawaiian side, we are Ali'i, we're chiefly class. We are descendant of a first cousin of Kamehameha I's mother. So we have been hereditary retainers to the Kamehameha dynasty as long as they existed. And then after that, we continued as retainers to the Kalakaua. So that's just a little background on the Hawaiian side of my family. I was fortunate in having a grandfather that grew up speaking Hawaiian as his first language. So it kind of gave me a little deeper dive into the culture. My dad's family are all Portuguese. The Portuguese side of my family are interesting. We are what are called Anusim or Maranos. So we were originally Jews and we were forced converted to Christianity. So we still retain a few Jewish customs. My dad's grandmother, was a feitseira, which is the Portuguese version of a bruja, of a witch. She was very, very famous on our island for curing people and also for having the ability um, to put the evil eye on someone. Both her daughters were also feitseiras. I consider myself a curandero. I'm the sixth generation in my family. Um, that practices our form of, of spiritual healing. I'm a practicing Jew, which is what I would call myself. So I do a lot of, um, in addition to practicing Judaism, I also do a lot of the kind of metaphysical work from my tradition and then also working with the saints because that's the tradition that I come from in my family. So that's kind of my connection with the spirit world? Hopefully that answers your question. 
I'm really fascinated by people whose practices are formed from such a variety of backgrounds. It's a nice reminder that there are multiple ways of achieving the same goal, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. My maternal grandparents kind of raised me. It's a Hawaiian thing. We call it Hanai. Both my parents had to work, um, and I was a real sickly child. I had very bad asthma. So my grandparents took care of me. And a lot of the stories that I was told were not fairy tales. There was there were stories of supernatural encounters in my family. Um, so that's kind of my earliest view of spirits. They were something that existed. I knew from a really early age, like two or three, that they weren't living people and that some people could see them and some people couldn't. Um, and they were just, they were there. They were always around. I had two imaginary friends that I'm not really sure were imaginary. My sisters talk about them and they said, you know, you, we often wondered because just matter of factly one day you told us, oh, they've left. They told me they'd be back, but they're gone. And then I never talked about them again. There were two elderly women who started appearing to me around the time I was three years old and left about the time I was six and they would come into my room and they would tell me things and then things would happen that they had told me. One that stuck in my mind because I was a little kid was one of them came to me and said, oh, don't be sad and don't be scared. A lot of the fish in your aquarium, I, I, I loved our family aquarium, are going to be gone. The bear's going to eat them. And I thought, what? And I had a dream that night, um, I was probably not quite four, that this, I'm sure it was some kind of spirit, this evil looking bear came in and said, I'm gonna eat all your fish and you're gonna tell people that I did this and they're not gonna believe you. And I woke up in the morning and I had these prize, I loved these angel fish. We had different kinds, but there were these four big angel fish and they were gone. Not a trace of them in the tank. Not a skeleton, not a nothing, they were gone. And I remembered the dream, and I said to my mom, Flora and Kleena, who were the names I had made of the two ladies, said that the bear was going to come and eat the fish. And my mother just kind of looked at me with that, you're a very strange child look. And that was the last that was said about it. Once I had a very, very bad episode of asthma and I actually had to go into the hospital and be in an oxygen tent, then they had oxygen tents. Um, this was probably like 1964. And I remember both of the old ladies saying, you're going to get really sick. Don't worry, you're going to get better. And about two days after that dream, I had a, such a severe asthma attack that I had to be hospitalized for five days. So those were the kinds of things they would tell me. And then they just disappeared and they did not, I did not see them again until I actually started working with Sarah as a student. Sarah teaches courses on how to connect with your gifts. And I had kind of pushed a lot of those kind of gifts aside um, growing up. And when they started to come back to me, there were the two ladies again. And saying, we've always been with you, we'll always be with you, but you won't always know we're here. So they may have been the first two spirits I saw. Uh, but the one I remember the most was my great-grandmother. So my Hawaiian great-grandmother, we called her Grandma Kualoha. Kualoha was one of her, her names. She had several Hawaiian names. She died three months before my mom was born. So she died in 1928. My mom's Hawaiian name is Kualoha. She was named after her. So it's a big thing to visit graves, kind of like it is in the Philippines. You know, we go, we eat at the grave, we clean the graves, we take flowers, we take lei to the graves, we talk to our dead. So I had always wanted to go. My grandparents, who are the ones that visited the, our family graves the most, said, no, you're too young, you're too young, you're too young. So when I was five, um, Memorial Day was coming up and my grandparents said, okay, you can come with us this time. So I spent the night 
at my grandparents' apartment. Really excited. We got up like right at the crack of dawn. So my grandma and and I could help her sew lay to take to the graves. So it's an old graveyard in an area called Makiki in Honolulu. It's on a hill. So as you're walking up the hill, my great-grandmother's grave is in almost to the top of the first little hill. And her husband's is several rows below hers. So my grandparents also brought some flowers. They were filling a coffee can of water from the spigot down by the road. And both my grandparents used canes. So walking up the little hill was kind of slow for them. So I ran up the hill first. And I saw my grandfather's youngest sister. We called her Auntie Babe because she was the baby of the family. Her real name was Leilani. So I saw my Auntie Babe and I'm like, what's she doing here? And she was calling to me. So I ran up to the grave that she was standing by. When I got to the grave, she wasn't there. And I was really confused. By that time, my grandmother had reached me first. And she said, Jay, how did you know where Gamma Kualoa's grave was? And I said, I don't know. I came up here because I saw Auntie Babe. And my grandmother, and by this time, my grandfather had come up behind. And he's staring at me. And my grandma says, what do you mean, Auntie Babe? And I said, well, I saw Auntie Babe, but maybe it wasn't her because she was dressed really funny. And she looked kind of different. And my grandma said, what did she look like? And I said, well, she had her hair up in a bun and she had a big comb. You know those tortoiseshell combs that like Spanish women wear? And you had the mantilla over it. She had a big one of those in her hair. And I said, and she was wearing a mu'umu. People on the mainland call them mu'umus, but it's really mu'umu. So she was wearing a white mu'umu. And when I got up to her before she ran away, I said, she she didn't look quite like Auntie Babe. I don't know how to, you know, at five, I couldn't really explain it. And my grandma was really interested in how her hair was done and what she was wearing. And so I said again, and then she said, what did she do? And I said, well, she didn't say anything to me. Um, she just smiled at me. And then I looked away for a moment. And when I looked back, she was gone. And so my grandmother said, and this is so Hawaii. She goes, that was not your auntie babe. That was grandma Kualoha. This is her grave. And I was like, what? And she said, you got your asthma from her. She died of asthma. You've never been to her grave before. She was probably just showing herself to you to welcome you because she had never met you before. And I went, oh, okay. We continued on. That was the rest of the day. We never brought it up. As we're walking down, though, I hear my grandfather behind me calling my grandmother, um, his nickname for her was Muggs. And so he goes, Mabas, that boy has Ike. Ike in our language means I'm um, like second sight. And she's just like, Shh. So I assume they told my mom that story because that night after dinner, my mom never asked me about it. But what she said was, so you went to see your, your Grandma Kulo's grave today? And I said, yeah. She goes, you know, I saw her when I was five years old, too. And I was like, why is she saying two? And then she said, I was went into my mother, meaning my grandmother's bedroom, and I saw a Hawaiian lady sitting on the bed who I didn't know. She was rolling a cigarette. She was taking that, we call it paka in Hawaiian, um, the tobacco. And she smiled at me and she disappeared. And I called your grandma. I said, mom, mom, who is the Hawaiian lady sitting on the bed? And my mother described her. And my grandmother said, oh, that's your grandmother. Now, we only have one picture of my great-grandmother, and it's her when she was very young. It's probably around the time she was married, 
So she was not quite 17. So who I saw and who my mom saw looked different. Before I moved to the mainland after I graduated high school, I was visiting my grandparents. And out of the blue, we had never talked about this. My grandmother says, do you remember the time you saw Grandma Kualoha? And I said, yeah. She goes, so I've never told you this before. How I knew it was her was when she died, I helped dress her and fix her hair and put her in her casket. The comb you saw, I put that in her hair. We dressed her in a white mugu. She said, that's how I know you saw your great grandma because you would not have known how he dressed her. So that was the first time. And she was corporeal. I mean, I could see through her. There was like, people talk about misty or grayish looking. Nope, she looked like a person. She looked like a solid figure. This is what I consider a very classic ghost encounter. Then, when Jason was about 13, he had witnessed something on a whole other level that opened his eyes to the many facets of the spirit world, something so sacred that he wasn't supposed to see. We were taught, especially by my grandfather, that there were all kinds of spirits. We were taught to be very respectful. We didn't worship Native Hawaiian deities, but we respected them. And my family, because we originally came from the island of Hawaii, and we were related to the Kamehamehas, so one of our family protective deities, Almakua, was Pele. Back home, we talk about, you know, are you Pele people or are you not Pele people? My family are Pele people. So we're on Maui, visiting friends that had shares actually in a condominium in Kihei. And they had the top floor of this condo. And they came to Hawaii for a month every year in the summer. And so we all flew over to see, we called them the Tacoma people. And they had set aside a large, like three-bedroom apartment for my family to stay in. So it was my grandparents my mom, my two sisters, and one of my grandfather's sisters, my auntie Nitty. And we were staying there. We had had dinner. We went up to the, the roof and they had turned it into like a lounge area. So we're against the wall facing Mount Paleakala. So facing what we would say Malka, facing mountains. And we see this huge like ball of fire in the and it's floating and it's bouncing and it's traveling, you could tell a great distance. And it starts to bounce up the side of Haleakala. And it goes up in the air and it comes down and it's just very erratic. And it gets to what would be the top of Haleakala. Now this is probably a good 70 to 100 miles from where we are. So it's the size of a golf ball to us. So you can imagine how big it was then if you were next to it. It goes up to what we assumed was the top of Haleakala. This is 10 o'clock at night, so it's completely dark. And this is probably, so I was 13. This was in 1973. So a lot of the building that's there now wasn't there. So not that many lights. And it disappears. And I, we're all staring. And I look at my grandfather and I said, Gramps, what the hell was that? And he goes, that's Tutupele. She's going to visit her relatives at Haleakala. She used to live there. And I went, what? And he said, sometimes she appears as an old woman. Sometimes she appears as a young woman. Sometimes she appears as a ball of fire. When she travels between the islands, she's a ball of fire. And that was her climbing up there. So I said, well, let's, you know, are we going to stay up and watch for her? And my grandfather said to me, and this is one of the things that kind of took me. He said, you know, you are given a gift to see that. You aren't supposed to see that. None of us were supposed to see that. We're not supposed to see where the gods walk. You were lucky. But let's not, let's not get her angry. Let's not push it. We're going to go downstairs. 
And we started to bring it up again. And my grandfather's just like, no, we don't talk about these things. You saw it. That's a gift. That really awakened in me this realization that there are layers of realms of spirits that interact. It's not the spirit world. It's the spirit worlds. And it's inhabited by different beings. And I happened to see one that was never human. And from the way my grandpa talked about it, it was very different than all the stories about seeing ghosts, seeing spirits. This was cautionary. You know, there are some things that you may be allowed to see and you just look, but you, you don't interact with them. You can get hurt. And that's where, if you're familiar with Hawaiian spirits, the whole concept of the night marchers. So that's where that comes from. You're not supposed to see those spirits. You're not supposed to see the Wokaipo. They are they are performing a sacred duty, whether they're the the gods walking or chiefly spirits. You see them and you interrupt with that and they will kill you. Um, and that's our firm belief. So it created in me this real respect about working with spirits. Don't take this lightly. Know the spirits you're working with. Know whether you have permission to work with them or not. And be respectful because they could hurt you. They can kill you. So we're back in Honolulu and um, it's the end of the summer. And a couple of my aunties, my grandfather's sister-in-law, one of his sisters, takes me to lunch. There was at the Elks Club in Honolulu, once a week for lunch, all the old folks would get together and you would see hula. I mean, these were women who were in their 80s and dancing. So they danced as teenagers for King Kalakaua. I mean, it was it was just an incredible time. And I'm sitting at the table, and there's a woman. Um, she actually wrote a really good metaphysical book called Change We Must. Her name was Hannah Beery. Everyone called her Nana Beery. Um, she was a Hawaiian kohuna. She's a good friend of, of one of my aunts. And she's staring at me and she goes, boy, you saw something, didn't you? And I said, what do you mean, auntie? And she goes, who did you see? And so I told her the story and she goes, okay. She goes, who blesses houses in your family? And I said, my grandpa. And she said, who else? And I said, no one else. She goes, you know, you have an EK. You can bless houses and I'm going to tell you how. Right. So at, at this table in a luncheon in the Elk Lodge with all these people around, she teaches me how to pikai, the Hawaiian ritual for blessing a house to quiet spirits in it. I still do this for the Hawaiian community here in Sacramento when people call on me. Um, but just kind of out of the blue, just one minute she was going, you know, so how do you like high school and how do you like going to Punahou and, you know, to what did you see? There was no discussion about that at the table. I have no idea to this day how she knew. The old Hawaiian folks that I grew up with, that's what they were like. They would just start talking to you and they would tell you things and you had no idea how they knew about it. You learned not to ask questions. You just learned to observe and listen to them, you started asking them questions, they would shut up and they would never talk to you again. And that's kind of our tradition. We say noho i hamo, sit and shut up, is our method of, of learning from, you know, from our elders. I moved to the mainland when I was 18. By the time I was 21, my grandfather and a good deal of his brothers and sisters had all passed away. So looking back on it, it's almost like they knew there was only a couple of years left that I was going to go away and they'd not see me again. So they started kind of teaching me all this stuff. There are periods of time when people come into my life to teach me something. And when I learn the lesson, usually they leave. 
When we return from the break, Jason shares the story of his Auntie Francine, who was nearly taken by a powerful deity, the scariest thing he's witnessed while paranormal investigating, and how he finally accepted his calling to become a healer. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, the stories continue. This happened to my auntie Francine, who's passed away. She's not related to me. She was one of our elders, one of the kupuna in the community in Sacramento. I loved that lady. Um, Very powerful, spiritual woman. If you ever see the old movie with Julie Andrews in it called Hawaii, done by James Michener, it's done in the 60s. There is a 13-year-old Hawaiian girl in that movie who runs away with one of the American sea captains. That's my Auntie Francine. She's a famous, famous hula dancer. She left Maui when she was 18 for Honolulu, and just for the big city. She was making ends meet. She was dancing hula. She got a job with a family friend, working for a family friend. There was an old international marketplace in Wenkiki. They've now since redone it. There used to be a bunch of lay seller stands where women would sell flower lay and they would sell bunches of flowers. And one day this Hawaiian lady, elderly Hawaiian lady comes up to her, never seen her before. She goes to her, she goes, dear, you have paka, you have a cigarette. And she says, sure, auntie. She gives her a cigarette, and the woman sits down. She has a plastic chair next to her. There is my Auntie Francine, and she's stricken late. And the woman just starts talking to her. No introductions, nothing. And my aunt is like, this is weird. And the woman goes to her, soul. how do you like not living in Lahaina? And my aunt is like, how does she know I'm from Maui? She goes, I, I like it. Auntie, I like Honolulu. She goes, yeah, it's different. So you used to dance um, with Auntie Emma Sharp. Who are you dancing with now? And by this time, she's getting nervous. And she tells her who she's dancing with. The woman finishes her cigarette, puts it out, gets up, and just says, okay, bye, dear. She walks away. Next day, and it's important that you know, the time was noon. Same woman dressed in the same red mumu comes up to her. Excuse me, dear, you got paka. Yes, she has a cigarette. She sits down, starts talking to her again, telling her who her friends is. You should stay with this person. You should leave this person alone. This goes on for five days. My aunt is freaking out. So six day. She walks to work. She gets there early. Across from her lay stand is another lay stand, an elderly Hawaiian woman. They weren't really friendly because competition, but they would say hello in the mornings. She gets there and the woman goes, girl, come here. Girl, now, come here. She goes to her and she goes, don't pop that lady no more. She goes, what are you talking about, auntie? The lady that comes to you Stop talking to her. Why? She goes, girl, you know she's not a lady, right? And my aunt looks at her and goes, what are you talking about? She goes, that's Tutu Pele. 
That's not a lady. She likes you too much. That's bad for you. Today when she comes and she asks you for paka, you give her the whole pack. Then you give her a bunch of anthurium flowers. They have to be red. Then you tell her, Auntie, I cannot talk to you anymore. I'm going to get in trouble with my boss. She goes, girl, you do this or bad things are going to happen to you. It's not good when she likes someone that much. Well, anyone from the spirit, but especially our deities, they can like you too much. So they want you as a companion. And if they want you too much, they'll take you. So she's watching this the whole time. And she's like, okay, Pelly only appears to someone once. That's the tradition. She's the hitchhiker. They pick her up. She asks them for a smoke. They look in the back seat. Either they just see the glowing cigarette and nothing else, or she's gone. She knocks on the door for a glass of water. You come back with a glass of water. She's gone. This woman came five days in So the Hawaiian woman is like, this is not good. She likes you too much. So she's making lay. Noon, the woman comes again, sits down. Same thing. She gives her the pack of cigarettes. She's about to give her the flowers and tell her, for the first time, the woman, she's been speaking in English the whole time. First time, the woman turns to her and talks to her in Hawaiian. And she says, no need, girl, no need. I don't like you getting trouble with your boss. I don't need the paka, and she gives it back to her. She goes, but I want the flowers. And then she turns to her and she goes, you know that job with Aloha Airlines? You're going to get it. My aunt had put in for a stewardess job. They had never talked about that at all, ever. And then she turns to her and she goes, no worry, everything's going to work out. But this is the last time you're going to see me. Thank you for being kind to me. I have to go back home. I have things to do in Hilo. So Hilo is the major town at the foot of Kilauea Volcano. Now, our stories about Pele is before an eruption, she wanders the islands and she tests people. She appears as an older woman or a young woman. She usually asks for something, a glass of water, a cigarette, a ride from someone to see whether they'll give her hospitality, they'll do whole keep up, which is like our major value as Hawaiians. She walks away. Two days after she leaves, my aunt gets a call. She's hired by Aloha Airlines. Two days after, there's a huge eruption on the Big Island. Never sees the woman again. My aunt then realizes, you know what? I talked to this woman for almost a week. She never told me her name. This woman had no purse. This woman walked and she had bare feet. And then my aunt remembers, and this is a very Pele thing. I saw her smoke the cigarettes. I never saw her light them. She says, all I can remember is her taking the cigarette from me. And next thing I know, she's puffing. How did she light the cigarettes? According to the Encyclopedia of Demons and Demonology by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, as Christianity spread, pagan gods, goddesses, and nature spirits were incorporated into the ranks of demons. So these deities that had rich backstories and layered morality were now lumped together under the category of evil. Because of this, the word demon has become loaded. If I had heard that story as a kid, I probably would have considered Tutupele a demon in the Catholic sense. I have now come to understand the word to mean an entity that was never human, although similar to humans in that they are neither inherently good nor evil. But for many, demon still means an entity that is hell-bent on harming humans. These are the entities so many paranormal investigators seek out because they're the easiest to capture on camera. And Jason encountered one. I have done paranormal investigating since 1991 in some different groups. I did a few walk-on parts in an old TV series called Dead Famous. 
So I was doing a investigation probably in 2002, maybe 2003 in Sacramento. Was with a group that I'm not with anymore. The groups had his wife, who was our lead sensitive. I'm a sensitive, there's two other sensitives there. It's a rental house, three like college students, just a lot of drama, girlfriends in and out. We get there and the house is really oppressive, like very, very oppressive. Um, you know, I'm sure you've walked in a place and you can just feel not physically dirty, but like the place is unclean. So we walked in, we're setting things up and we're doing our initial walk. And we're walking through and there is an addict above. And we hear someone kind of following us. So we go into one room, about a 10 or 15 second delay, you start hearing footsteps going into that room. You go back out of the room, the footsteps follow. We open the like hatch thing to look in the attic, pull down the ladder. There's nothing in there. There's boxes and things, but there's no person. We keep this up. So there's so picture like if you had a, a big crab walking on a wall, that scratching noise, we start to hear that following us. And this time we're like, okay, something really weird is going on. I don't think we should continue with the investigation. One of the sensitives started getting sick, had to go into the bathroom, started throwing up. All of the batteries on our equipment got drained all at once. So they're going out for new batteries. Um, the temperature in the house, we're doing temperature readings. The temperature in the living room, so it's one of those where the living room and the dining room are connected, and the kitchen is like one big space. So we're in the border between the dining room and the living room, and the temperature drops probably, this is the summer in Sacramento. So outside, it had cooled down to like 90. We do a temperature reading in the house, and we had turned the air conditioner off, so there wouldn't be wind or anything, you know, blowing any vents or noise. The temperature reading is down to 62. And we're like, hey, this is not good. So we say, let's pack up. The lead sensitive starts acting really strangely. She goes, no, I think we should stay. I think we should start, we should find out what's up there. And we're like, this is a bad idea. Let's say we're all having bad feelings about this. She goes, no. And everywhere she walks, the crawling thing is right over her. Before we knew what she's doing, she's opened the thing, pulled the ladder, stuck her head up in again, comes back down, and she is not herself, almost incoherent. And we're like, what's the matter? What's the matter? I'm going to call her Sally because I want to use her real name. So Sally, what's the matter? What's the matter? We take her to go sit down and we're right by the wall in that studs the living room. To this day, unless there were other people there, I would have said, maybe I imagined this. We see her lift about five inches off the floor and get slammed into the wall. She must have been a good foot away from the wall. There was clear space between her. And we were like around her, so somebody saw it this side, I was looking straight ahead, two other people saw it from the other. We all saw her levitate, pull forward as if someone had picked her up by her shirt, pulled her forward, and then just threw her back against the wall. And she is out. She is like glassy-eyed. We call her husband over. One of the other sensitives goes, I am taking her home right now. We are cutting cords around her, or doing Reiki over her, or just give her a glass of water. We get her out of the house. Her husband, who's the head of our group, calls the homeowners over. And we have this on film. They showed the video. One of the guys just gets really pale and he goes, oh crap, I should have told you, but I really told us what. So he broke up with his ex-girlfriend, said, I never believed her that she did black magic. But she told us that she put something in the house. 
You can't get rid of it. And anyone who stays there will get sick or will get hurt. And they called us in because people were getting sick. They were getting scratched. This happened after this woman moved out. So we like, there's nothing, we can't help you. You need an exorcist. We're not exorcists. We leave. So about a month and a half later, and it takes Sally, she was back to her old self by noon the next day. It took her that long to, they said she was just like incoherent. She was sweaty. They almost took her to the ER room. Just, she didn't have scratches, but she had what looked like it could have been a very faint bite mark on her leg. She remembers standing, looking up at the hatch and thinking, oh, I want to go up and see what's in there. The next memory she has is she is home in her bed and the other sensitive is trying to get her to drink water. No memory of anything else from there. She lost probably a good hour and a half of time. Call back talked to the person about a month later to see how things are going. And he says, actually, we've terminated our lease. I'm the last person here. Everybody's moved out. Things just got worse after you. You left. But my landlord wants to talk to you guys. So landlord calls and he says, you know, I hear, I've heard from the folks there that there were problems. He calls probably a couple months later and goes, I had two tenants since then. They don't stay more than one or two days. And then they leave. They just say, this place is weird. We hear noises. We hear people talking. It gets cold. So they put him in touch with another group to do a blessing. They do a blessing. About a year later, the landlord calls our group back again and says, do you remember the house you guys? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to forget that. What happened to my wife? He goes, well, I just want you to know that I could not keep tenants after that and the house is gone, it burned down. We checked the fire records. The house did burn down. They drove by. There was just the slab. Had a member of our group who was a fireman with Sacramento Fire Department contacted a friend at Elk Grove Fire Department who did the investigation. No discernible cause for the fire. It wasn't electric, it wasn't gas, there was no signs of arson. So there you have it. Until then, paranormal investigating to me was just like, this is fun, this is like, we're the Scoobies. After that, it's like, okay, this is serious. You need to not be, we're gonna stick this out because this is a, no. When people get that feeling, that gut feeling like we should not be here, you need to listen to the we should not be here. The paranormal investigating stuff and things. Yeah, I'm too old. I'll let the young, let the young bucks do that now. I'll sit and watch on TV. Despite having been taught healing and spiritual traditions and having had countless supernatural experiences himself, Jason didn't immediately step into his role of curandero. When the time came, everything perfectly aligned to lead Jason down the path he is currently on. One of the realizations I did find when I moved from Hawaii to California was you don't talk about these things on the mainland. Even from family members, I had relatives living in California. And it was pretty clear that while we talked about this stuff back home, people will think you're crazy here. So don't talk about it. I actually had a couple of friends when I was going to college who basically stopped being friends with me and said, you know, you creep us out. So I think the thing I learned from that, while spirits may appear cross-culturally and, you know, to all people, higher raise affects your um, openness to that. There's a there, there can be a, a, an awful lot of prejudice around that. And that really, it really kind of shocked me. And it caused me to, Sarah uses the word muddy, which she uses to kind of mean stifle your gifts. 
And it led me to a long part of my life where I just didn't talk about it and kind of suppressed it and pushed it down. Probably for a good 15 years, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I was coming out too. So, um, and other things that was in mind. So I had had a real bad series of bad luck. Putting addition on the house, stuff was going wrong. It was just out of the clear blue, my mom calls me up and goes, I think someone cobrant you, which is our word for curse. Thanks. And I said, why? And she goes, I've been thinking about all the things going on, you know, and your dog got sick and you had to put the dog, you know, to sleep. And she goes, you need to go see someone to get this taken off. I said, I don't know anybody here. And she goes, well, you need to find someone. I'm reading a book, just happenstance, and Bruferia. I read the back page and the author, who's a, um, if you read any stuff from Llewellyn Press, she's a pretty well-known author there, Katrina Raspold. And she wrote the book on Bruferia. I find out that she lives in a town like 20 minutes from me. So I go up to Shingle Springs to get her to sign the book. I'm walking around. Then she had a store. She since shut it down. And this woman's head pops out of the office and she goes, hi, can I help you? I'm Katrina Ratzbold. I own the store. And I said, oh, you know, I came to meet you. Um, I really enjoyed your book. She goes, come inside. And there's another woman sitting down in there who is still my teacher, Gladys, who's a Cuban bruja. And they look at me and she looks at Gladys and she says, he's one of us. And then she looks at me and says, who in your family is a bruja? And Gladys goes, yeah. And she was a two-headed bruja. She did both sides. It's my great-grandmother. And then Gladys says to me, kid, you are dusty, which is kind of the slang in California among brujos, meaning you've got a lot of stuff on you. We're going to do Olympia on you. So they do one, break the egg, look at it. This is all very familiar to me because they used to take me to my aunts, my auntie Chris and my auntie Georgina when I was a kid because I would frequently get sick or have, I don't know, you guys might call it the same in the Philippines because you use a lot of Spanish words. Do you know what the word espanto means? So espanto is, it's espanto in Portuguese. It's kind of like you have a, like a shock. People say it, it take, it, that took my breath away. And there's a belief among Mediterranean people that when you experience that, it can leave a psychic wound in you. That if you don't have it fixed, you carry with you the rest of your life. And so they said, you know, you've had an espanto. And they're right. Um, when I was growing up, um, I almost died twice from miasma. And somebody cursed you. After that, Katrina goes, you know, I'm starting a class. I, I rarely do this, but I'm starting a class it may be the last time I teach any Brujeria students. I think you should join. So I studied with her for a year, continued to study with Gladys. The same time this is going on, I took the year's class with, with Sarah. So I start to get dreams of my great-grandmother, who I never met. She died in 1957. I was born in 1959. There were no pictures of her. I call my oldest sister, who knew her growing up, and I describe her and she goes, yeah, that's great grandma. I didn't know what she looks like. There's no pictures of her. So I tell my mom this and Katrina and Gladys are like, you're a brujo, you need to, you need to do limpias. This is your calling. So I bring it up to my mom very gingerly, you know, great grandma, you know, does anybody else in the family do this? And she's like, no, it's died out. And I said, oh. Well, you know, and she cuts me off and she goes, are you asking for my blessing to do this? You have it. I don't want to see this disappear from our family. We have never talked about it again. This was a subject my mom would not talk about. Um, I don't believe with matters, metaphysical matters, that there's coincidence. I believe that there's planned interaction. There are ancestors or guides on the other side that are interacting on this plane. I don't know how to make that sound less woo-woo than it is. Um, so I guess to kind of 
tie this up together in where I am now, I really sort of think I'm doing what like the final path is in my life. What I didn't share about myself is professionally, I was a social worker. I was a social worker for almost 40 years. Um, so it was helping people. It, I feel like I helped the psychological side and physical hurt side. I worked for CPS for a while. I was a drug counselor. The last 23 years of my life, I worked with developmentally disabled folks. So the one side I never really was able to touch was the spiritual side. Being a curandero allows me to do that. My tradition, Lattice thinks I'm nuts because the Cuban tradition is you charge for this. I don't. We grew up with the belief that people want to give you something they do. You make money off of this and the gift will be taken away from you. It's good to help people. You know, it is. And my biggest hope is that one of my nieces will be interested enough in this stuff that their crazy uncle does that will want to learn from me so I can, you know, pass it on to them. Um, they kind of have a belief that if five generations passed and in each generation somebody doesn't do the work or by the fifth generation someone is not, the gift is taken from that family line and it's never returned. I hope you enjoyed Jason's experiences as much as I did. He has truly witnessed the full spectrum of the spirit world, from benevolent ancestors to powerful deities to malicious demons. If you're looking for a reading, he unfortunately only does so by referral, but he recommends you visit Sarah's website, mediumsaralemos.com. Plung Sarah's stuff. She's, if somebody really wants to study with someone who's a really good medium, I would not be where I'm at now if I hadn't taken her year-long pathways to spirit. I really wouldn't. Thank you for joining me today. Have you had similar experiences to Jason? Send me an email at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash storieswithsapphire to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash sapphiresandalo where I live stream twice a week. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sandalo. Music written by Sapphire Sandalo. Special thanks to Jason Lindo. For more information on this episode, visit storieswithsapphire.com. 